Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Do you know how Amazon has totally blown up the way we all shop every day, even do our grocery shopping? Well, with insurance premiums up 19% over five years, the question now is what will Amazon and two powerful partners do to control the costs of health care? Think for a minute about the combination. One of the nation's biggest banks and biggest bankers, one of the biggest investors who's also a billionaire, and another billionaire who runs Amazon, a technology and shopping disruptor. All three combining forces to take on one of the country's biggest challenges, the skyrocketing cost of health care. These three companies have gotten together and they want to use their expertise to change the way healthcare is delivered. These three corporate giants are creating a new company to cut healthcare costs for their combined one million employees. The challenge is Herculean. Healthcare makes up roughly 18% of the U.S. economy, costing us $3.5 trillion a year, $10,000 per person. Warren Buffett has been warning about it for years. Healthcare is the tapeworm of the American economy. We're talking about a huge, huge cost disadvantage against the rest of the world, and we need to, we need to address it. Let's stick with healthcare. Amazon is now the latest big employer to implement a travel healthcare program for its workers. Now, the program pays to send employees who have been diagnosed with cancer to visit doctors at City of Hope in Los Angeles if they choose to, rather than relying on the local healthcare providers in the Seattle area. Now, this still isn't a result of Haven. The company says this has nothing to do with Haven. Haven, the joint healthcare initiative between Amazon, Berkshire, and JPM, Buffett, Bezos, and Jamie Dimon. So uh, I wonder, guys, when Haven is going to bear fruit. It's interesting. Last year, Jeff Bezos announced he would be instituting a $15 minimum wage for all Amazon employees after liberal lawmakers, particularly Senator Bernie Sanders, called on Bezos to raise his employees' salaries. Well, now that raise has gone into effect, but while, wa raises, while wages have increased, hours for employees have decreased. So the question, gang, should Senator Sanders be on the receiving back at backlash end now? What do you think? Well, I actually think it's a, it should be Amazon, shouldn't it? I mean, Whole Foods said they weren't going up to $15 an hour. They were getting maybe a dollar extra an hour or $2 if you're a supervisor. And as a result, some of these Whole Foods workers have gone from $30, 30, 30 hours a week to 20 hours a week. I'm catching on. To you the, are, yeah, yeah. There. The end but, of the hour yes, is that's right. But that's what happens in a capitalist system, right? When money shifts this way, it, I guess hours shift the other way. Minimum wages have obviously been guaranteed by the federal government for quite some time. So we're, we're only arguing about the level at which that minimum wage should be. I guess we could also be this arguing is about more than double. Whether, whether or not they should have been there in the first place. But, you know, there is a principle in place that companies should pay people a living wage relative to the poverty level. And the federal minimum wage hadn't kept up with that. So I, I think there's more to be said for that. So today we're speaking with Melanie Dorigo, who is running for Congress in New York's 3rd District. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. I'm super excited to be here today. Excellent. I, You know, you're a progressive, but you also have a Master's of Science degree. So how has that shaped your political beliefs, um, especially the area of health care? I believe that you support a Medicare mm -hmm. for All plan and feel that uh, health care is a right, not a privilege. 
That's correct. Um, yeah, it, it, it certainly has changed, um, you know, really my entire career. So I, while I do have a master's in science, it's actually in a health-related field. Mm-hmm. Um, so healthcare to me is personal. Uh, it's, it's what I spent my whole career devoted to. And, um, you know, because I've worked so closely in the field, I, I've worked with patients, I've worked with employees, and I've worked with employers. And I know, you know, we like to point to the corporations and, and say, well, they're the bad guys. But they're even suffering because the cost of healthcare is unsustainable for corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wish we would talk about that a little bit more when we talk have this Medicare for All debate. You know, the idea of the cost of it, we never talk about the other side of it, mm-hmm. which is what the cost is already costing us and the projected cost over the next few, 10 years. Um, but, you know, when I when I lean on my master's of science, it, it, things become very clear to me because I think a lot of times when we approach um, anything political, we approach it from the heart. It's an emotional-driven, passionate mm-hmm. response. And it helps really cut through that, right? I, I rely on the scientific method. Truly, um, what's the goal? What's the plan? And here's the solution. Um, and you know, it, it, as I said, like I, um, you know, spent my whole career in healthcare, but I, I was building strategies for companies on reducing risk mm. and improving health outcomes. Um, and, and it's really been, um, you know, my approach to to most policy answers, most policy solutions, as, as I navigate this, you know, congressional run. So interesting, and I think that's a fair point that doesn't get discussed enough. The cost of healthcare on the employer side has gotten significantly larger, and it's become a burden to a lot of the small businesses. I'm not talking about large multinational corporations, you know, companies like well, you Amazon. Know what? But go ahead. But you know what? The, the truth, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but the truth is, even to large employers uh, who can fund the bill it's still becoming unsustainable, which is why we're seeing a rise of high-deductible health plans. Right. It's less coverage, and it's more expensive. Um, you, know, yeah. we're seeing, you know, certainly smaller businesses are really feeling the impact, but um, you know, larger businesses are feeling it too. Um, and so it's just going to get to a point of we're going to have almost no coverage in these very expensive plans. This yeah. shift that we've seen you know, over the last several years, I think now um, it's over 50%. Of employer-based health insurance is a high-deductible health plan, and I know for a long time um, insurance companies would spin that as a way to, you know, contain costs. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that is that it prevents people from going to the doctor yep. because you give a family a choice of spending, you know, because what what that means is for those listening who may not understand or may not have had experience with a high-deductible health plan means you are paying everything out of pocket until you hit a certain point. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's a negotiated rate, but your doctor's office, like here in New York, uh, regular doctor's office is probably going to cost you around four hundred dollars mm-hmm. just just to go check on a sore throat. Now, a family who's already struggling, and let's be honest, most working-class families are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. It's given a choice as a parent, am I going to go to the doctor for maybe I have some pain, maybe I have some aches, I'm not feeling well, but I'm going to ride it out because I'm going to save that money because what if my kid gets sick? That's what we're not going to compromise on. And then ultimately that leads to, could, or could lead to a potential catastrophic um, you know, heart attack, stroke, et cetera, because people aren't getting checked. Right. No, you're 100% correct. Um, and my next thought was going to be, and I think you'll agree with me on this, is the large mm-hmm. multinational corporations like Amazon, who has now purchased Whole Foods, are eliminating health care for their employees mm-hmm. by getting around not having them as full-time. They're using a whole host of, of um, yep. tactics. So right. 
you know, another unintended consequence. The, the problem is, is we shouldn't have our health insurance or our health care. We shouldn't have health insurance, if you ask me. Our health care shouldn't be tied to working because when you mm-hmm. lose a job, you can't afford COBRA. What are you supposed to pay your COBRA bill with? You have no income. Right. COBRA is very expensive, right. too. And, and to keep those costs down, so right, the employers are going to these high deductible plans. Uh, but even the low ones, the $2,500 deductibles still have really mm-hmm. ridiculous co-pays now. Right. Exactly. It's it's not sustainable. No, um, it's not. And, you know, you, we have, we do, I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. There is a debate to be had when we talk about funding Medicare for All, and I do think um, some of that does need to come from corporations. Uh, but I do also believe strongly that we shouldn't be looking at health insurance as some type of commodity. It's a right. We are one of the yeah. most developed nations in the world, and it is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you know, when I have conversations with constituents around my district, and, and you know, a lot of them, they, they approach me with, it makes me a little bit nervous. And, and, and I get that, because when you grow up in a world and you are told one thing, it's very hard mm-hmm. to, to think about something another way. You know, so I, I try to have these conversations that inspire my um, constituents to work more and think to the other side of it, because we deserve that. I mean, it's, it's, it's so insane to me that 20 year old are um, launching GoFundMe's to pay for their medical yeah. care. Like, we should be ashamed as a nation. I agree. It's, it's absolutely insane. So, yeah, I, you know, I fully support Medicare for All, and I'm fighting hard for it, you know, particularly because I've worked in the field, and I know that health care is a right, and it should never be a privilege. I 100% agree. You know, and the other um, argument to be had is about how tethering health care to profiteering in this way also hinders our economy in the sense that your workers aren't healthy. They're not getting the care they need. They're out more sick, right. day, sick days or less productive. You know, and you know, mm-hmm. my, my father's from Sweden, and I've had this conversation with him, and he often will say no conservative in Sweden would get behind the medical system that we have here in the United States because it's inefficient, um, economically, it, it doesn't, it's not taking care of what we would think of as an investment in our working class. It's not, there's, yeah. there's really nothing good about it. The only people benefiting right. from our system are the healthcare insurers and the other profiteers that are uh, tethered to the industry. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. And, and that's, that's what we need to fix. And you know what? Of course, there are open-ended questions because things aren't as black and white. What do we do about those jobs that are lost? And, you know, there are several plans being floated about extending unemployment to those that have lost jobs and offering job training. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, many of those who would lose their jobs are sales, um, you know, you know, uh, people who work in sales or bill right. collectors, et cetera, that kind of thing. I think it gives us a unique opportunity for health insurance to actually start selling actual health care because what they're selling is sick care. It's mm-hmm. not really health care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent a, a, a large portion of my career um, building preventive strategies and building programs to help uh, mostly in the organizational space, you know, stave off disease and teaching employees how to be healthier. And there's a market there that is just so underdeveloped. So mm-hmm. focus on that. Go, go for it. You know, sell that to your employers. And, you know, we need to make sure we are taking care of the rest of the, of the rest of us, you know, from a healthcare perspective. Indeed. You know, and the other um, part of that conversation, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is mm-hmm. A lot of the current Medicare plans, um, I'm not talking about Advantage plans, which are totally garbage, 
but mm-hmm. a lot of Medicare plans and also a lot of the union plans are currently actually managed by divisions of the healthcare insurers. So they're, they're paid a fee mm-hmm. to manage mm-hmm. these uh, systems. Do you mm-hmm. think there's possibly a, um, a job replacement in that arena? Because obviously when we, we move the system over, there's, there's going to be a lot of employment available for handling all the payments and things like this. I mean, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, when we, you know, oftentimes you hear the Medicare for all supporters, you know, point the finger at the insurance companies and they deserve it. But <laughs> what we all know is that the majority, the overwhelming majority of folks who work in insurance companies are not those decision makers. They're not the ones, you know, right. cutting care to make more of a profit. There are, right. there are people, there are working class people who are trying to feed their families. That's right. Um, and I do think that, you know, I, I, we have to look at those numbers, but I think that makes a lot of sense. People who have the experience to move on over, um, you know, become part of you know, the government plan for sure. And, yeah, 100%. In fact, one of my oldest and dearest friends um, handles Medicare claims for one of the large health insurers. I won't name names. But she yeah. is a huge advocate for Medicare for all, for the obvious reasons. And she's just yeah. working, and she's just working on the Medicare side. Not, she's not even in the uh, other health plan. Right. So that tells you a lot, I think. <laughs> well, you know, and if I could share a story with you, um, yeah. I, I, a couple weeks ago, um, a constituent reached out to me, and they, we're, we're having an issue with um, uh, with our power, our electricity. Um, on, on Long Island, and so he reached out about that issue, and then, you know, as, as it goes, one issue goes into the other, mm-hmm. and he started to tell me that if his taxes go up, he's not going to be able to afford his house, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, I make six figures a year, my wife got sick, and she had to stop working, he had a point where he was sick, they both started, they both couldn't work, they almost lost their house, and now he's working again, and it's, you know, in Long Island, not unlike, you know, many parts of California, when we talk about, like, oh, it's a six-figure job, it's just, it sounds fantastic, but the cost of living is yeah. so high that, you know, raising your tax five or $10,000 could be the difference between keeping your house and having to move. Mm-hmm. And then he shared with me, I work at an insurance company. <laughs> and so I thought I was going to get the, you know, the opposition <laughs> to my stance on Medicare for all. Yeah. And it surprised me what came next. He said, I'm really glad that you're supporting Medicare for All because mm-hmm. even though I work in insurance and even though it means that I will likely lose my job, because I have to tell you that I am part of a division that I see um, constant cuts to make more profit at the expense of not only the, um, n- not only um, customers of insurance, but, but doctors also. Your doctors used to have something like six months, I think three or six months, I can't remember, to um, submit a claim. You know, so you know, you come to me, I'm a doctor, I provide a service, I submit that claim to um, an insurance company to get reimbursed. And they are cutting them down to like 30 days. And so who does this It's not the big conglomerates that have hundreds of billers working for them. They're going to get paid. It's these smaller yeah. you know, doctor's offices, these mom and pop. It's like, is that what we want? Is that what we're trying to do? You're going to mm-hmm. decimate that industry. So, you know, we've seen it now at the customer level. So regular, um, you know, people who obtain insurance. We, we've already felt that run. We have, you know, less coverage, more expensive coverage. Employers are being squeezed. Like, I can't tell you how many uh, benefits directors, HR directors, and smaller companies, CFOs, and presidents of companies that are almost in tears saying, what am I going to do? The healthcare debate in America sometimes boils down to a contrast of the haves and the have-nots. 
And in the suburbs of Chicago, there's both. Something like this, um, or even just like peppermint, you know, anything oh, that's any kind of herb that's real settling to the stomach. Lynn Bedner proudly tries to help people with alternative medicine. She owns Walsh Natural Health in Evanston, Illinois, and employs four people. Bedner wants to provide health insurance to them, but can't afford it. It's an issue with me trying to retain people, and of course, you just want to do the right thing. Employee Teresa Fleming has been without health insurance for seven years and really wants the extra protection. Last year, I had to go to the emergency room over at Evanston, and they actually covered everything as a charity case. Walsh Natural Health does not have a big enough staff to make a group insurance program work. If you only have four people and one of those people has a health problem, the rates are just ridiculous. How am I going to continue to afford health care for my employees? Because yeah. they really didn't care about it. But now you're seeing it in the medical profession, too. They're mm -hmm. trying to squeeze out and make as much money as they can. And it's just, it's not sustainable. It's not. It's completely untenable. And I, I, you know, God, it's just like capitalism run amok. You know, the real travesty here is that the health insurance industry is much less regulated than the PNC markets are, the property and casualty, the folks that insure your house. Mm -hmm. They have much mm -hmm. stiffer regulations from the Department of Insurance than the health insurer does. It just doesn't make any hmm. damn sense. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as I said, uh, I think we're definitely in agreement on this one. And, you mm -hmm. know, as I continue to, you know, grow my campaign and align myself with with other candidates who are running who support Medicare for All. My hope is that, you know, the cohesive message will get out and we'll be able to, you know, reach people who maybe were unsure because it's different, right? Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, we're definitely seeing a lot of movement with younger folks who are really intrigued by the idea because, you know, they've graduated college and now they're working and they, they're calling it out for what it is, you yeah. know, and it's a total sound. Yeah, it's a, it's a scam, and these poor kids. I mean, I know I was just reading this morning that in New York, rent-stabilized apartments are going for $2,400 a month. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Rent-stabilized mm -hmm. apartments? Right. I, I don't right. want to know what the market rate is at this point. I mean, it's, you it's do insane. Not. Yes. It's I know. insane. It is. And, and it's, like that, it's like that certainly in Manhattan, but we're we're really feeling the squeeze on Long Island, which is, you know, my, my mm -hmm. district is um, – part of northeastern Queens. It was along the northern shore of Long Island um, through Nassau County and Suffolk County. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hear from, from families and uh, young folks all the time, you know, parents who wanted their kids to graduate college and then come live close to them because that's the dream, right, right for parents. Right, right. And, and young folks cannot afford housing on yeah. Long Island. Um, and then those who are retired, taxes have gone up so much that you've seen property values go up so much, which generally people are happy about. But with that... So do your taxes. Yeah. And a lot of retirees who have spent 30, 40, 50 years in the community are now grappling with how are we going to afford this to stay here? You know, mm -hmm. so it, it's a real issue. It's a huge issue. It's it's out of control. So mm -hmm. I wanted to um, talk with you a little bit of women's right to choose, which I know is something that you support. As a woman of yeah. science, do you often get strange arguments um anti-choice arguments against abortion and what are some of those arguments and and how do you um counteract them 
you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in an area that is very pro-choice. So mm. even um, a good a good portion of Republicans in this area are pro-choice. Okay. Um, so so I, I don't get targeted as fiercely as um, as you know as some other candidates might. Um, you know, and while I do have a, you know, I am a woman of science. I like that. I think that's going to be my new tagline. But, you know, I was raised Catholic. And, and this is where I talked about earlier, like that change element, looking at things in different ways, you know. And I think it's very much steeped in the Catholic faith that, you know, you value life. And, um, you know, so sometimes you'll, you'll hear that argument. Unfortunately, what I hear more often is a disinformation campaign, which is the idea of um, late-term abortion. Mm-hmm. Somehow, um, you know, there's a GOP talking point that, that um, Democrats are for late-term abortions. I think that really stems from, um, unfortunately, Donald Trump saying that um, on TV somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality, what we know is, like, Late-term abortions are, are such a small percentage of abortions that happen overall. They only happen if if it's uh, due to um, you know uh, if, if the woman will lose her life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it's an extreme situation, and I think that um, it is not anyone's business. It is not anyone's choice, but the but the woman. But you know what? I I, I can understand. Um, people who are very faith-based to approach it from that lens and they say that a life is a life because I was part of that community once. Not that I, I, I didn't advocate for that, but I, I just, I was around that community. Yeah. So I, I heard that argument a lot. Um, and the way I always felt about it personally was, well, it's really none of your business, right? Because it's not your choice. It's just like, I, it just because it may not be something I do, or maybe it is something I do, but it's, I should not impose my views on right. someone else. Right? right, right. And I think I think that's really important. And, you know, the other side of it is um, that I don't think it's talked about enough is that there's a difference between being pro-birth and pro-life. Oh, yes. Um, and, I, and I think that we need to have that conversation because if you're going to stand in front of me and say, you know, we need to save all lives, well, okay, um, let, let, let's say we got on board with that for a second. I, I still think that no one has any authority to force a woman to carry a pregnancy that she does not want to have. Mm-hmm. That's almost a year of her life. Mm-hmm. But let's say we're on the same page about that. Does society pay for her medical care during that time? Does society pay for the child to be fed and clothed and mm-hmm. you know put through school and all that? You know, particularly you particularly hear this argument um, from the other side of the aisle. They want to cut all these social services. They want to cut all these safety nets for people. Yeah. They want to eliminate free lunches in schools. They want to eliminate staff benefits. You don't. You're not pro-life. You're pro-birth. And what it really comes mm-hmm. down to is they don't give a goddamn about life. They care about oppressing women and mm-hmm. and, and oppressing marginalized communities and keeping them down so that they can't rise. That's what this is about. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. Um, and it's reminding me, the the Catholic part has reminded me of this uh, documentary that I watched on Netflix about uh, Roe v. Wade. And mm-hmm. I was really fascinated at, at lear- by learning at the beginning of this document documentary, they talked about how the Catholic Church helped mm-hmm. women get them. I had mm-hmm. no idea. I was shocked mm-hmm. by this. Yes, and that's, that's something that I've been learning more about as well. And it seems that it has been a convenient play um in in continuing to segregate communities yeah that that's where it seems you know the, the, the opinion has shifted yeah 
you know, I think when you when you look at it from a scientific stance, too, you know, there are cells. Like, uh, people who have cancer, those are live cells. Should we not cut the cancer out? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, Bacteria, viruses, they're, they're all alive. alive and, you know, there's cells. And I think yeah. um, there's a very big difference between a cluster of cells and a life. And 100%. I think... Um, you know, but, but I do, I, I can understand people, you know, feeling passionately and deeply about a cause and, and I can totally respect that. Um, but again, I don't think that it is, um, if you're going to, if you're going to show me the continuation that you're pro-life and then maybe that's a conversation that could be had right. and it's not that way. Right. No, I completely hear that. Um, I wanted to shift gears for a second and talk about the Trump tax bill or the tax scam bill, as I like to refer to it as. It's really hurt the middle class. One of the things that it did was eliminate the SALT uh, deductions. We're going to take this fight to President Trump and the IRS. Governor Phil Murphy reacting to new rules unveiled by the federal government designed to stop states like New Jersey and New York from keeping a version of a popular federal income tax deduction. The IRS is simply changing the rules to effectively invalidate our law and ensure that nothing will change for New Jersey's taxpayers. Last year's tax overhaul by President Trump put a $10,000 cap on deductions for state and local income taxes, otherwise known as SALT, which Democrats say depresses home sales. In response, the states have proposed allowing donations to government entities in exchange for state and local tax credits to be used as a deduction on federal taxes. But the IRS says it's not allowed. The new rule means taxpayers cannot deduct the portion of the contribution that's used as a state tax credit. The IRS is setting a dangerous precedent. They are saying that no matter what states may do, the rules as they exist and as they have been widely understood won't apply because they'll just change them if they don't like what you're doing. Last month, Governors Cuomo and Murphy joined the states of Connecticut and Maryland suing the federal government over the cap, claiming it targeted largely Democratic states. The question now, what does this mean for taxpayers? What is your position on this? Because I would imagine that your district was uh, really affected by that. It has been very affected by it, um, and it's, it's something that, um, believe it or not, even two conservative congressmen um, in Long Island uh, voted against it because of the salt tax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing of it is, is that certainly we want to repeal the salt tax. Of course, we want, we, we need to give um, some relief for our long, for our Long Island families, but I think to me. That's not enough because things weren't really working before that was enacted, right, before there was a tax. So I think we need to really restructure the whole tax plan and and look at it and uh, allow, you know, the top 1% or the top, you know, 25 uh, what is it? Sorry. Allow the top um, 10% of the 1% to right. pay their fair share of taxes because we we see what's happening. I mean, the wealth inequality, the wealth gap has been growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. I think my district um, is the fourth or fifth largest wealth gap of any congressional district in the country. Right. And so we really, you know, we have tremendous wealth, but we also have poverty. We also have a large immigrant population, a large un- undocumented population yeah. here. Um, so, you know, it's, it's more extensive than just anyone who, who, anyone who in my district who stands up and says we need to repeal the salt deductions and we're going to be fine is really out of touch with Long Islanders because while it's a piece of it, it, it really is just scratching the surface from mm. the systemic issues that the tax, 
kind of want to call it a tax cut, like the tax uh, cuts for the wealthy, um, you know, 100%. what that kind of uh, highlighted. Yeah. yeah, no, look, Trump campaigned on on fighting for worker cl- working class rights. He campaigned on making D.C. less swampy, but he's done the opposite. I think that's pretty clear at this mm-hmm. point. And I like that you brought up the wealth gap because this is a really important part of the conversation. We're not just talking about differences in income. The income inequality is bad. It's severe. Let's not kid ourselves. But the other part of that conversation is the wealth gap. And wealth isn't just income. So when these Mm -hmm. folks pay themselves with stock dividends and they use things like carried interest to get their, uh, their income pay rates down to the same as a capital gains tax rate, these are tools mm-hmm. that the rest of the country absolutely does not have access to. Only the plutonomy can do this. Mm-hmm. So That's right. And, and I think people need to wake up to that. When they start talking about, you know, I'm, I'm seeing more people aware of this, but I think more people need to be aware of it. I think a lot of folks are I still agree. sort of saying, yay, capitalism, people work hard to be rich, and it's all bullshit. It's a rigged system. It is bullshit. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. Um, you know, I, I went to my um, my opponent's town hall the other night, and I I was so appalled. And, and now my opponent grew up very wealthy. Um, his father has this incredible immigrant story where he served in the war and, and got his citizenship and, and started a law firm and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, entered the politics. It's an incredible story. Um, and my opponent stood up in front of the room and he told people, you know, basically saying capitalism is great. You know, it's a competition. You have to work really hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the ones who work the hardest have, have the most dividends. And you, just, you know what? Not everybody can work that hard. It's Not a joke. Succeeds. It's I, a joke. I was astounded to see, like, how out of touch. And he's like, you know, that's why we have these social safety nets. I'm like, wow, it was such an entitled um, mm-hmm. entitled perspective to not realize that like that oppression doesn't exist, racism, discrimination, these things don't exist. There's, mm-hmm. there's you know, children who are born um, in low-income families, and, and like what we're seeing now, even middle-income families, they're at such a disadvantage from those who are growing up in wealthy families because they have all the resources, all the tutors, all the extra, you know, um, classes, et cetera, et cetera. And young kids growing up in poor families and middle-class families, many of them, you know, they know what it's like to be hungry and, and go to bed hungry. And, like, they're stressed out that their family can't keep the lights on, never mind that they're going to get an SAT tutor. You know, it, 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 it's just such a it's such an entitled approach. Um, but we're seeing, you know, we're seeing, and I think that's why we're starting to see young people become more engaged. Uh, you know, you see candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, even though she is a capitalist, she is, you know, her, her programs do um, build more of a safety. And of course, Bernie's a socialist and he's all for lifting everybody up. But the fact that we're seeing these two progressive candidates at the level, polling at the levels that they are right now, I think it really is showing a shift. And, and, and I hate to say this, but, you know, it's, it's quite possibly one of the major reasons that Trump was elected, right? Because we, like some of us knew he was full of baloney. Uh, a lot of us in New York certainly did because we've seen it baloney our whole lives. But the message, it spoke to people. And, and he's a charismatic guy. So people believed it when he said, I will bring back your jobs. You know, I will fix this problem. And people believed it. Um, you know, and I, you can't like fault people. I mean, I hope they're still not believing it after, you know, what, all the corruption and what he's showing us today. But 
But I think, you know, people are looking for a lifeline. And I think, you know, the upside is that we're in such a pivotal moment in our society where we can push for change and we can make these things happen. But I think we need courageous leaders. And, you know, judging over the last two years, the last year and a half, I think what we're seeing is that we have some, but we need a lot more. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh Donald Trump, as far as I'm concerned, is the inevitable outcome of failed neoliberal policy. The, the, mm-hmm. the free market is not a moral arbiter of anything. And the fact that the Democrats even jumped on board that concept 40 years ago is still, right. it still angers me, to put it mildly. So I right. disagree with that. Um, let me talk about money and politics uh, for a second, because I do think money and politics <laughs> is the root of all evil. And I think mm-hmm. the only way we are going to get rid of the regulatory capture, we're going to get rid of the capitalist pursuit of profits. I'm talking about the deregulation, the privatization of our utilities, the privatization of our school system, um, mm-hmm. the profiteering in healthcare. You know, all of these mm-hmm. things that that sort of third way neoliberal uh, arm of the party produce these these ideas that are also shared by mm-hmm. neocons. Um, I think this mm-hmm. is the only way we're going to get money out of politics. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think the only way that we're really going to do that is to overturn the Citizens United decision. And I think that uh, the 28th Amendment, which is something several uh, groups in the country have been working on for a while mm-hmm. now, is, is really the plausible and only route to go. So um, what are your positions and thoughts in this area? Yeah, um, well, I completely agree that money and politics, money and politics, like big money, corporate money, dark money, it, it doesn't mix. And, you know, it's something that I've been pushing really hard. Um, my opponent is almost exclusively funded by corporate money um, and the ultra wealthy or, you know, individuals who run corporations who are donating right. and then donating to the corporate tax. Right. Um, you know, to the tune of the last election, I think less than 2% of his donations came from small donors. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty insane. Um, and when I look at his votes, I see a clear line of, well, he, he broke with the Democratic Party again because maybe he's supporting ICE because so many of his donors benefit off mm-hmm. of keeping ICE up and running, you know. Um, I do think we need to overturn Citizens United, but that is a complicated, long, like that's the long game. That's not an easy uh, flip. But um, I think we do need to, hold our um, electeds accountable. Mm-hmm. I think we have to think out the box, think outside the box. So certainly there are organizations that are organizing to do that. You know, I've signed the Wolf Pack pledge here um, mm-hmm. that, you know, strives to do that on a state level to give right. support. Um, but I actually just introduced, I don't know if I shared this with you, but um, on Wednesday I introduced my first policy, oh, right which is called yeah, it's called the Paid By Act, actually, okay. and it stands for Politician Accountability Information Disclosures Benefiting You. And essentially what the policy would require is for politicians, anytime they're running any type of an ad or they take a position or they, you know, there's a vote um, on, you know, um, a particular bill, like let, let's say it's Medicare for All, mm-hmm. Um and if a politician, like let's say like a Mayor Pete, uh, who is against Medicare for All, um, he would have to disclose all the money he's taking from insurance companies, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. and medical suppliers. So kind of like we require yes. businesses to do, yeah. right? 100%. So let's, let's, 
let's let constituents, let's let Americans see who they are paid by, right? Because we are seeing this movement, this shift, it's it's, um, mostly in the progressive community, but I have seen a few candidates, uh, independents, and even one Republican that I know of who who didn't win his election, but reject corporate money. Um, And I, I think that these are, you know, we don't have to agree on every issue, but we should all agree that this is a bad idea. You know, we talked about I agree. Um, the, how the insurance system is set up as a profiteering industry. This is really no politics. I mean, I'm not saying every politician, you know, maybe they get some donations and they don't vote that way, but the, the truth is we don't know. We right. do not know if they are voting in the best interest of people or if they're voting in alignment with their um, their corporate donors. So what's been interesting about uh, my policy is that several candidates in New York have already co-endorsed it, uh, and then it started getting picked up by candidates who are now running all over the country. And I think that that really shows the importance of the movement. It shows the push, and it shows these establishment um, politicians that we are not standing for them. And we see you, and we're going to call right. you out. Right. No, I think that's a great idea. It would certainly put, um, certainly chip away a little bit about what what Citizens United allowed for. I almost have right. like a, I can't, I don't know who made that meme, but it's been floating around where they had the uh, the presidential candidates wearing NASCAR uh, jumpers uh-huh, yeah. with, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with all the labels of the yeah. companies they had taken money from. Look, I mean, here's the thing. Quid pro quo is quid pro quo. I've often seen mm-hmm. folks try to make the argument, well, show me the evidence of quid pro quo. Why do you need evidence? Do you really believe in your naive little mind that General Electric is giving $300,000 to candidate B because they don't expect something in return? And let me tell you something right, right now. That politician doesn't necessarily have to give him something in return. But the fact that that, got, that corporation gave him three hundred k is in his mind. And when he votes and he makes a decision and he realizes he's going to need that money to get reelected, how do you think that that doesn't affect his decision making? How? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so they become beholden to their corporate donors. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think this secondary level, like certainly that is the most common, the most concerning uh, for all of us. But the second level is that it keeps people out of government, right? Yeah. So we know that it's the super powerful, it's the super well-connected that have these connections. Mm-hmm. So they will, you know, if you grew up in uh, or, you know, you have somehow found yourself in this super elite, wealthy circles, that will, it will continue to fund you. But what I believe, I mean, you look at look at our Congress, like almost, I think all of them are, well, not even more, but almost all of them, aside from the last election cycle, were multimillionaires. Yeah, that's generally and, the case. I think most we, of Congress is millionaires. I think that's just a fact of the matter. You're correct. Yeah, so how do, like, it, we need more working class people in Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, we need diversity in Congress. And, and if we have to rely on, for someone to be a millionaire to get there, like we're, we're not going to get there. So mm-hmm. removing corporate money, um, you know, I, I think we need public financing of elections to even the playing mm-hmm. field. But you would think, you would think that every politician would be on board with this because, I mean, unless you're corrupt, right? Because I would right. think that nobody would feel good about this. Right. Yeah, no, 100%. I don't disagree. It's the platonomy. It's that, that um, ever-increasing levels of wealth and money just you know, they keep increasing each other in a circle. It's it's very, exactly. it's very bad. 
So let's talk about your opponent. We brought him up a little bit, but Tom is is the quintessential Wall Street Democrat, in my opinion. Um, he is yes. sided with Republicans on a great many things. I think you brought up the resolution on ICE, for one, which I think is mm-hmm. just revolting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He voted for Trump's border bill. Uh, he's a member mm-hmm. of, of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which I want to get into in a second because I think they're a little bit like the IDC was. They're absolutely like the IDC. Yeah. We like to call them the Problem Causers Caucus. Yeah. That's what they do. <laughs> right. Okay. So, well, let's let's talk about that right now. Um, um. So the Problem Solvers Caucus, the IDC, which has now been dismantled, was just heinous. This was a group of Mm -hmm. Democrats in the state Senate in New York that had a power-sharing agreement with the Republicans. And they would have these claims on their websites, claims in their campaign literature about how progressive they were. But they never did anything Mm -hmm. to pass any progressive legislation. In fact, they would do the opposite. They would table bills intentionally. They would uh, mm-hmm. side with Republicans. I mean, they were just crap. So I'm glad yep. that they finally got ousted. Um, so I'm assuming that the Problem Solvers Caucus doesn't have any sort of uh, power shared agreement because this is a different sort of set of circumstances. But oops. But what are some of the similarities that you see? Yeah, and, and I think it's unclear whether there is a, an official power sharing setup mm. um, because. They're fairly secretive about um, quite a lot of it. So it's an even split of Democrats and Republicans. And I think from an ideological stance, it's, you know, the mission, it does, it sounds good. We are two groups that work across the aisle to get things done. Sounds ideologically very sound. Mm -hmm. Um, However, under a Trump presidency, where we have seen uh, the GOP totally turn their back on Americans, we know that they're not acting in good faith, right? When you see, and we, we, like, the evidence is the evidence. You see, um, you know, like Senator Lindsey Graham, who went from, like, Trump will destroy this country to defending him every step of the way, right? And we, we've seen that over and over. Right. It's just defending and championing hateful policy after hateful policy. So I think um, the idea of negotiating across the aisle while ideological, ideologically sound it cannot be done when you're negotiating with bad faith actors, right? Yeah, like, are they're not interested in finding common ground. They're interested in furthering their common causes for their corporate, corporate exactly donors right. and things. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly right. And they're very corporately funded. Um, they're, if you look at each the Democrats that are um, on the Tom Tom Club, most of them are you know, very Wall Street-friendly Democrats. Um, and, and the thing of it is, is that the Democrats, Never get anything. Never get any benefit out of the caucus. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, exactly. One of the one of the first um, one of the first things that my opponent did uh, when he won um, in this last cycle. And now I, I'm sh- I, I don't want to make assumptions, but you're very politically engaged. I'm sure you, you did some work um, mm-hmm. trying to elect Democrats. You know, putting putting in the work. I did. I did a lot on the state level, but I made calls. You know, I, I was working 70 hours a week on a volunteer basis. Like, I really put a lot of my energy into electing as many Democrats as I could. Mm-hmm. So imagine my dismay when I learned that my congressman first asked while he was, you know, reelected as a problem solver, you know, problem causer, was to hold up Speaker Pelosi's speakership. And what he negotiated was a rules change. What he'll tell you is that 
I made the process more fair because historically the speaker could bring any bill to the floor that he or she wants. Now, while under another president, that may be a, you know, something to discuss and debate, under a Trump presidency, where we have seen him steamroll and dismantle protections and issue hateful policy after hateful policy, that's what you want to do? After we claw back some accountability, some power, we finally flip the House, you want to give Democratic power away and give Republicans more power? Uh, he hasn't been able to explain that. Uh, so that, that was one of their first acts. Um, you, you know, you mentioned the, the ICE resolution. That's something else that they did. Uh, but I want to know if the Problem Solvers Caucus is so great, where were they during the tax cut, the tax scam? Why didn't they come together and fight? At least two, at least two of them were from Long Island that are on that caucus. Why not fight? One of them is, you know, a self-proclaimed leader of the Republican Party. You have to have some power. So where were you? Where were you? Where were you then? What good is it? What good is a caucus? It's like it's like the bully who takes your lunch money every day and you still show up and hand it over. I mean, you know, trading away uh, democratic values, ideals, and power. Give me a break. I think yeah. it's, um, you know, it's 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 because they think people aren't paying attention. The, the other, the most recent um, example that I'm aware of, which was particularly egregious, was during that so-called uh, humanitarian aid bill at the border. Now, I don't know if you are aware of this. It, I'm, I'm obviously really aware of it. It wasn't reported on as much as it was that the bill was actually passed. Right. Um, so I'll quickly just, you know, for your listeners, yeah. um, give a quick synopsis. But, it, you know, theoretically, humanitarian aid, border, humanitarian aid bill at the border sounds good. That sounds like something most of us can get behind. We know people are dying. Kids are getting ripped away from their families. Uh, most Americans are very upset about that. So they passed this bill. The House passed a bill initially that had a list of protections, guaranteed protections, and that included, you know, medical care um, and, you know, different types of access, certainly like, you know, food provisions. um, It was like a list of like 10 or 15 items. Mm -hmm. Of course, when it went to the Senate, Mitch McConnell stripped it out. He increased funding for ICE. He added military at the border, you know, total horror sent it back to the House. Now, I know through some of my personal contacts that Nancy Pelosi was negotiating with Mitch McConnell all day, trying to get some of the protections put back in. Now, Tom and his Problem Solvers Caucus went to Nancy Pelosi and said, we're not going to vote for your bill. It was the, you know, the uh, 4th, it was just before 4th of July recess. They wanted to go home. They said, we're not voting for it. You don't have the vote. Now, Nancy Pelosi will never bring a vote to the floor that she's going to lose. So because of the Problem Solvers Caucus and the Blue Dog Dems, which are also a conservative Democratic caucus, they basically passed this BS sham bill, which overwhelmingly went to expanding shelters. Yeah. So, like, we can debate whether that's humanitarian aid, but, like, that was that, that's another crowning achievement of the Problem Solvers Caucus. So, so tell me again how this is benefiting the Democrats at all. It's, it's not. not. And you right. know what? It What kind of pisses me off, too, is I wish Pelosi and the rest of these guys would stand up to them, and they never do. It infuriates mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on. Because yeah. right, and we're I, the and ones I that disagree. lose. The Republicans gain every time. Because every time one of these Democrats rolls over for one of these mm-hmm. issues, they get nothing in return. Where's the quid That's pro quo? That's exactly right. There is none. Yeah. <laughs> there is none. This is, this is like the bully who takes your lunch money. And so, like, yep, I have to wonder, like, are you 
or lined? Are you ideologically aligned with your GOP allies or, or not? Because mm. we're, you know, even when, um, when Donald Trump was condemned with the resolution, when he um, told the four freshmen, um, you know, quote unquote, this squad to go back to their countries. Right? I remember when he said that oh, famous yeah. remark. Yeah. So the problem, you know, most Democrats got up and condemned him and said this is racist yeah. and called it out for what it was. That's what we need to do. Right? Yeah. And like we can, you know, a resolution doesn't, you know, formally do a lot, but it, it was some some form of accountability that they had. Mm-hmm. because there's conservatives in my district. But that's not the reality. The reality is you're addicted to the money that you're getting. And you, mm-hmm. you, your constituency is the corporations. It's not the people that live in your district. You know, I hate it when they say stuff like this. Like, if you look at West Virginia, every single mm-hmm. one of those districts went to Bernie Sanders during the primary. Yep. Now, all the superdelegates mm-hmm. went to Hill. I think almost all of them went to Hillary Clinton. Uh, so obviously there was a disconnect there as well, but you cannot possibly tell me that the people of West Virginia want a corporate right. stooge like Joe Manchin in office. I don't believe right. it. Right, 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 right. And that and that's exactly what we are, you know, hoping to accomplish here on Long Island. Awesome. Um, you know, I I'm hoping to provide, um, you know, my my neighbors and my community, my district with a choice that's going to be fighting for them for once. Because I I can't tell, like, I do a lot of organizing work in Long Island. I have just met the most incredible people here. And I can, like, that's that's the best part of campaigning, right? I get to meet people all over the place. I get to hear all kinds of stories. And it's amazing. And, and, like, I think it's shameful to have a representative that could care less. I do too. Care less about the constituents, and, and like that's like he can't even be bothered to read the bill. Like he admitted to me that he didn't even read that humanitarian aid bill when I questioned him in depth on it. And like, mm. if the bar is that low, the bar is that low that you won't even read the bills. Yeah. Come on, yeah. we deserve so much better. And and you know, I think you're seeing all these primary challenges for many races all over the country. And I think like it's such a positive. Um, positive turn it, it means that people are paying attention it means that people care and i think that you know we're well poised to take a lot of seats and get a lot accomplished like get rid of the corporate money mm-hmm. and let's start fighting for the people right because that's why our government is here for yeah. the people by the people of the people so exactly. we have to start fighting for all the people i agree and i think that that crosses part uh party lines and i think the other thing that folks need to really think about is the Democratic Party registration is not the majority of the country. It's like 27% of the country, the vast majority of Americans are registered independently. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And most of those folks, I, I would suffice to say, would find progressive policies appealing. 
Yes. And, and I think, you know, polling, well, here's the thing about, like, you know, and you probably know this, but many people um, register as independent, mm-hmm. and they think that they're, that means they're, they don't, they're an independent voter. That's actually a party. <laughs> people are aware of it. We yeah. do have quite a few unaffiliated voters, and that, yeah. that's, like, really, I think, what we think of as the, the chief of No, you know, you're but right. In California, we call it NPP, which is no party preference. And, okay. and there are some states that actually have, like, I think there's, like, even a neo-Nazi party that's called the American Independent oh Party God. or something. Like, I know. Oh so we God. should be careful of our words there, for sure. Um, yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Just, no, like, no, I'm not you. I do the same thing, too. I'm always educating people around that here. Um, I do the yes, same thing, and too. And I think, you know, but polling does support that, right? It, it I'm, absolutely I'm not does. Sure where there was a poll recently, in the last two weeks, um, kind of Wisconsin, which is, you know, is the most conservative battleground state yeah. and they pulled on medicare for all and it pulled at like 79 or 80 percent mm-hmm. right. across party lines yep and it's you know like this this myth that i think um you know corporate gems like to push that you know we have to come to the center to appeal to mm-hmm. everybody independents are not excited by meh who's excited by meh that's no. not what we're excited about give no. me a candidate who's gonna fight for me that's give right. me a candidate who has ideas Give me a candidate who can build coalitions. Give me a candidate who's not afraid to stand up and say what they need to. Like that's yeah. what we're looking for. And yeah. I think I think it's scary right now to a lot of um, electeds who haven't been doing their jobs who've just yes. been coasting along. Yep. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's exciting to me. Yeah, I agree, <laughs> Melanie. It's exciting to me too because I've been wanting people to get more aware of things and angry for so long, and I finally see that happening, and it's like, yes, finally. Yeah. You know, yeah. The thing is, is that is what's what's sort of become the center, what's defined as the center, is really milk toast corporate policy that doesn't benefit the working class. That's the unfortunate reality. It's Correct. not that progressive policies are radical or extreme. They they make right. more sense in many in many ways. It's just that and they don't align with before. corporate interests. <laughs> it's about corporate interests, right? You know. Well, and, and on that note, which is so important, I'm so glad you said that. You know, I get that a lot. You're running to the far left as your opponent. And I said, well, if I ran, you know, if I ran to the right, I would run on the Republican ticket. And, you know, Hello. people laugh when I say that. I'm like, but, but that's the truth. And they're like, well, you know, he defines himself as the center. And I said, okay, do me a favor. Define the center, and then yeah. I'll tell you if I'm running to the left of it. Because the truth yeah. is, we never hear what those center priorities are. We never yeah. hear what those policies are. We just hear criticism. Uh, it's a fear-mongering, right? Like, I'm yes. sorry. Like, Do we this, not yeah. want health care for everybody? Do we yeah. not want clean air and clean water? Do we not want to protect our land and rising temperature? Do we, mm-hmm. do we not want those things? Mm-hmm. You know, do we not want a living wage for people? Like, is, are these, like, these are such radical ideas. Like, when did it become radical to not want to lock kids in cages at the border? Mm-hmm. Like, like right, seriously, when did that become radical? Yeah. You know, it's, the center is where the corporate oligarchy resides. That is what the center is. let them is. say that. Let them say exactly. it. Exactly. We need to push that and make them define it. Like, we, we don't agree. need to play defense. We have too much work to do. Right? Exactly. We're, we're, we're busy organizing and building coalitions. Exactly. To these races and take our country back. Let exactly. them do this. I agree. There's no such thing as the far left. When people say that, I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, what? You have the Republican Party, which has turned into, like, practically at this point, neo-fascist party. You have the traditional Mm -hmm. conservatives that are kind of pissed at the neo-fascists. 
And you have the neocons, and the traditional, traditional conservatives are also pissed at the neocons because of the way they've taken away constitutional rights, you know, rights to privacy, et cetera. So, and then you've got the Democratic Party, which is absolutely right of center. There's nothing left about the corporate Democrats, nothing. This is how the entire country has shifted to the right to the point where if you talk about basic FDR-style policy, that's right. like some radical idea, which is fucking ridiculous, in my opinion. Right, and it is. And, and that's why I'll throw it at them when they're like, well, isn't that, isn't that like the ultimate of socialism? <laughs> Of public schools. Do you like the idea of public schools? Right. How about like, social security? Know, Do you like the idea of social security? Yeah. Fire Firemen? Are they I'm, a good you know, idea police? for society or are they not? Yeah, right? I, I, agree. I, I think it's, it's these talking points and we need to reframe it and we need to be bold and courageous and not afraid mm -hmm. to reframe the debate. Like we need, you know, because yes. we have to stop playing defense, just go full more offense on it. I agree. Reframe debate. 100% agree with you on that. So you've also been involved in uh, one of my favorite uh, gun gun control uh, groups called Moms Demand Action. You've uh, been doing yes, yes. Um, tell me a little bit about your activism with them. Yeah, so I initially got involved. Um, I mean, really involved, I guess, um, in, in Atlanta. I, I lived in Atlanta for a little under a year, um, and. I'm trying, God, it's so terrible. I'm trying to remember. We had some, some local shootings happen in Atlanta. Um, and, and I started to, you know, I would get the emails to show up. So I started showing up. And then, of course, um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, yeah. shooting happened. Horrible. And, um, you know, I, I started showing up. Um, I, I haven't taken a leadership role. Um, I did talk about it with my uh, local chapter, but then I decided to run for Congress. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm taking a backseat to that. Uh, but we do, you know, we do show up. We show up at a lot of um, a lot of different rallies. Sometimes in offices, there's a lot of lobbying in Albany. Um, the last two years here um, in Long Island, there has been an NRA fundraiser uh, where they actually raffle off guns and knives into the community. Um, you know, there, there's no background check. Just if you want to go and buy a rough ticket, you, you can walk out with, with like a right. large rifle, etc. So we've, we've been protesting that every year as well. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, like, because I think that's important. It's important to stand up and speak out and say this isn't right. But what I love about moms is that they really have this evolution of organs. So, yeah. you know, lobbying Albany and, and, you know, there's a good text messaging network um, to, to get other other people involved um, or calling, um, you know, senators, et cetera. And, you know, I talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about, um about how much work I put in last, you know, during the midterms to, to get um, candidates elected. Well, a lot of work was in, in conjunction with Moms in Action. Like a lot of the um, members went and they canvassed for gun sense candidates, mm -hmm. um, which is, you, which you probably know is their designation. Yeah. It's not quite an endorsement, but that's sort of how they endorsed. Um, and we worked really hard to elect gun sense candidates, and we have actually enacted. Um, Several protections. So that now New York is one, has one of the strong, one of the states that has the strongest gun safety laws in place. Um, and you know, we we've enacted a, um, a national, not a national, I'm sorry, a statewide uh, red flag or stream of protection order. It's called different things in different states, uh, which which is amazing. Safe gun storage. Um, and most recently, my my actual state senator released um, 
just passed a bill we're waiting for the governor to sign it to outlaw ghost guns and um you know these are real life changes that start to happen and we still we have to get them going on a federal level because while mm-hmm. it's great that we are um, enacting these laws in new york uh connecticut new jersey etc don't have the same laws um you know if we had an issue in my hometown um just a few weeks ago where um, someone was arrested in town. They had 11 ghost guns, four kits, four ghost gun kits, several rifles, and thousands of rounds of ammunition in the home. Right. Um, and Jeez. you just, you know, it's, it's, it's scary, right? It, scary. So it, it, it was, um, I think it's been really great to see the evolution of, you know, it's not just about protest, but it's about next steps and taking the steps to push and, keep the pressure on elected officials to, um, you know, and electing the right candidates who are going to fight for these issues. You know, gun safety is one of the top issues here um, in my district. So, you know, it's it's been uh, really exciting to be a part of that. Um, In fact, last night we had, and we do, you know, we do a lot of community events. Mm -hmm. Um, Last night, uh, there's another organization called New Yorkers Against Gun Violence did a panel discussion trying to educate the community on what the red flag law is you know, the information isn't um, out there as broadly as, you know, we'd like it to be. And so a big contingent of moms demand action showed up. And, you know, uh, I was wearing my sweatshirt when I was canvassing, and a, a mother came over to me and asked me about it and wanted nice. to know more. Now she's going to join. You know, so I think it's, it's a coalition of moms that have just, like, you know, yeah. had enough, which is, you know, Shannon Watts is, like, her sort of um, – She's awesome. Her initial – She's awesome, and that was her initial motivation. Like, you know, that's what I say when I talk about, like, you know, we can't just accept shitty things right. just because just because it's the way they are. You know, we need people to step up, like Shadow Block, like so many other uh, women and so many other candidates are stepping up and pushing back against what's shitty to fix it. Right. 100%. It's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Um, I wanted to ask you about the New York Harbor Pipeline as well, and also yes. tied to that, your positions on the Green New Deal, etc. You know, we're facing mm-hmm. all of these horrific natural disasters that are just made worse by uh, the climate yeah. change issues, the, the horrific fires, the terrible hurricanes, yeah. you can go down the list. I, yeah. And I really do believe that the environment is an existential threat and that if we don't do something about this now all of these other issues that we're discussing here right here right now today won't actually matter so yeah um, i i completely agree mm. um i i'm a huge supporter of the green new deal resolution i think we have to stop fighting about whether or not climate change is real yeah um while we need to get every it's important to get everyone on board obviously about um you know Signed on to the Green New Deal resolution. I'm really focused on enacting legislation that starts tackling uh, the pieces in the Green New Deal uh, Green New Deal re- resolution. Um, you know, we're trying to switch to 100% renewable energy, rid of ourselves of dependence on fossil fuels, and let's really build a green economy. Mm-hmm. Let's help front lines. But I fully am all in, and I support it. Um, but I think right now, um, the Green New Deal has become, you know, such a hot button for people, yeah. uh, particularly, you know, Republicans, etc. And like, I'm just focused on getting it done. So, you know, yes, I fully support it. But like, if we have to enact, create another bill that accomplishes it, fine, let's get right, the sign right, on right. and let's, let's, let's move forward. Um, you know, regarding the, the Williams pipeline, you know, that yeah. pipeline has, was shut down. Uh, and now, you know, there's pushback and now there's potential for it to um, be put in and they're calling it temporary. Mm. Uh, you don't, create a pipeline for temporary uses. Um, temporary. 
we're pretty disappointed here with our with our senators who who have really they they, they truly do have a track record of um, pro environment policies, and I I understand that you know they're they're trying to help people ensure you know the winter make sure people have heat, etc. We have to think of a different solution. Um, you know what what I my understanding, and you know I'm learning more about it is that um, you know there's been so much industrial building in New York that there is sediment on the bottom of the harbor, and right now it has. It's almost like asbestos tile, right? Like, it's there, but as long as you don't touch it, you're okay. Um, And so once they start digging and building this pipeline, it's just going to, like, release all of these uh, harsh, um, basically, sediment, and it's going to destroy all of the the fish, et cetera, in the marina. And I'm concerned about what that spillover looks like. I think right. we really need to get away with it and get away from it, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of protests that are starting in Long Island. There's a lot of organizing. And, you know, when I say, like, earlier, like, sometimes you have to think outside the box because as much as, like, we often want a solution today, oftentimes it's not possible, mm-hmm. but there are other solutions. We just have to think of them, you know. Right. So we have, to, we have to figure out what it looks like. And um, So you talked a little bit about the ICE resolution in relation to Tom agreed to pass mm-hmm. that, but you did not mention that you were recently at a detention center in New Jersey, so you saw first person, firsthand, uh, what was going on. Yeah. There. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and the things that you saw? Yes, and, um, and well, you know, we'll take it one further. I actually went down to the border this past summer. Oh, okay. Um, and I went to volunteer uh, because, I, you know, a mom of three, you hear these stories, um, and as a woman, it's horrifying to think um, and learn about what, what's happening to these people at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I went down. Uh, we, my friends and I, decided to go. There were some women that I hadn't even known before, but like someone knew someone knew someone, and we ended up meeting for the first time um, down in El Paso. Mm-hmm. And um, we had been told that you know all these shelters had popped up. They were overrun. They needed supplies. They needed help. Uh, and within three weeks, that we booked our tickets and, and went down. Um, Trump had ramped up his MPP policy, which is essentially the Remain in Mexico policy, mm-hmm. and he had deported everybody. Um, what's important to know is like, when the U.S. deports people, they don't take them someplace safe. They literally just drop them off on a street corner to fend for themselves. Now, some of these people have traveled months to get to, get to the U.S. Yeah. They've walked. I met, I met um, a dad and his son who said they had walked for 61 days. I mean, it's just incredible wow. um, pilgrimages, yeah, that, that people are getting here. So then, you know, to just be deported and dropped off on a street corner with nothing, no resources. They're not taken to a shelter. They're just dropped off, and then they have to, you know, fend for themselves in a city that is completely foreign to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ended up connecting with some um, amazing groups on the ground. Um, this one in particular, Cope Border Institute, and they took us over into Juarez, um, where there was a shelter where people had either previously um, served and, you know, went through and were passed the processing center and were in detention and then deported and were awaiting uh, an asylum case. Some were waiting to get to the border uh, to then be processed and sit in detention to then get deported again to wait for their asylum. It's, it's, it's really uh, a total mess. Um, so, I, you know, hearing those stories and hearing the struggle, um, it was it was heartbreaking. You know, everything yeah. that you hear about is true. You know, um, I heard a story about the women who, um, 
you know, so basically when you're, when you're processed and put in detention, you're given a uniform, like a prison uniform. And um, they don't give women sanitary products. I think it was like one or something like that, one per day. Oh, my and God. So, oh, my God. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. So inevitably, you have to keep your uniform clean. And so inevitably, when women get blood on their uniform, they get punished. And the way they were punished was removed from the group and isolated. And put me. in these, like, no refrigerator rooms where they would be put there for anywhere from like two to three days. Are you kidding and me? Think about this. No, I'm not kidding. It's this traumatic experience as it is, right? Like it's, it's traumatic, like past is in a cell. With, it's How are you supposed to getting... not, hang on. I need, we need to stop for a second. Cause I am stunned yeah. by this. This is a story I have not heard before. Yeah. How are you supposed yeah. to get by with a single sanitary right. pad or tampon a right. day? That in is day. insane. I know. You, you don't. You don't. That's, and I think... Um, They're setting you know, them up for that punishment. Yeah, of course, intentionally. of course they are. Of course they are. And I oh think that, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading, um, and, and I know that there are there are folks that work for Customs and Border Patrol, et cetera, who are horrified. And they're, you know, they're, they're kind of fighting from the inside. But they've hired so many people without proper screening who really are, you know, enjoying abusing people oh my God. Um, and, and so you know there's both sides of it because like i think we can paint it it's definitely happening i don't know if you saw there's an article out this morning where children were uh basically threatened to be beaten or and were sexually abused and were threatened with sexual abuse which is just i mean i don't know what kind of human being threatens to like sexually abuse a child i mean it's just very it's so people. very sick people and so this is happening, you know, this is this is truly happening. Um, I met some just wonderful people that were really just looking for, um, you know, they were looking for a better life. A lot of them were free, fleeing violence, um, mm-hmm. stories of how, you know, like, listen, in, in the Northern Triangle countries, there's a lot of gang violence and people get extorted and they don't pay up. Oftentimes there's, you know, oftentimes someone is killed mm-hmm. in someone in the family, oftentimes the male in the family and then what happens next the women get raped and, and then they you know they right. end up like pregnant 13 year olds it, it's a vicious cycle so when people come to us to present for asylum in fact they were further traumatizing them there's kids that have been separated from their families they're lost in the system they've been put up for adoption they'll probably never reunite with their families again it's it's, right, it's right. disgusting it's horrifying it's a stain on america and i had to go down to do what i could to help it's you know, we raised a lot of money in our um, community and went down and we donated money to the shelter and we bought, you know, medicine, we bought sanitary products, we bought some toys for the kids. A lot of people don't have shoes or proper shoes that fit them. Think about these people that have been walking for two months in the same shoes. They're falling off their feet. What I saw a lot of was um, people who had sneakers with the backs crunched down because the shoes were too small. So they walk, you know, they crunch down the back so they can fit their foot in to get some coverage for their feet. Um, one of the most profound things for me was, uh, profound ex- one of the most profound experiences for me was um, seeing this man who he had come over to me and he um, he had pointed to my back and he said, mochila, mochila. And I found out that that meant backpack. And I, cause I had carried a little backpack. You know, when you cross over the border, you have to um, you need your passport. And he was had a few things with me, and um, I was—I looked in his hands, and he had this like, ripped, torn shopping bag, you know, something that you could get at your local grocery store, you know. And all his life, life belongings were in it, and it's like I—you I, know—I didn't want to cry in front of him, you know. But my eyes welled up, and I said, "Oh my gosh!" Like, like 
he was this man carrying around his whole life in a, in a trash bag, you know? It was, it was, uh, so, you know, my friends, I told them about the experience and I'm like, okay, we have to go and buy backpacks. And so we, we went to Walmart, um, actually the Walmart where the El Paso shooting was, we were there, I guess it was maybe two and a half weeks before buying supplies. And we bought, um, basically bought them out of bags and backpacks. We returned to the shelter and we weren't able to bring enough for everybody, but at least like family had at least one, um, you know, and I, it, it was, yeah, it was something, you know, you know, what we wanted them to do. They were very thankful, of course. And what we just kept telling them was like, listen, it's very easy to come to, like, I felt, you know, very privileged to be in that situation, to be able to offer some help and assistance. But I thought it was more powerful to let them know that like, this wasn't us, like, this is our whole community back home. You know, this came from everybody. We're fighting for you. We love you, you know? And I think that's an important message to hear when you're in this like traumatic situation. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, as, as you mentioned, I did go to the um, detention center um, in New Jersey with actually yeah. another um, candidate who, who's running in New York City, Lauren Ashcraft. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was an interesting experience. I think when you go and you see a tour and they're prepared for you, you know, you see what you see. I will say that, you know, the people were a little defensive and, you know, we ended up having a conversation about that. It, it was a really good learning opportunity. Um, because they had explained, like, well, of course we're defensive. Like, we're always being told how horrible we are. We're trying to do the right thing here, you know. Um, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's a whole – It's it, but this, this is where things are not black and white, right? I, yeah. I did talk to – they brought us to the, um, I guess, the majority of detainees, because this is a county jail, so they have, you know, county level – they have state and federal detainees who are, you know, basically in transition. They're, like, waiting uh, for their trials, et cetera. Um, and then they also are housing, um, you know, ICE detainees. And so the, the overwhelming majority um, had warrants for um, a misdemeanor. Um, I think it was a misdemeanor. I don't – maybe you're wrong on that, but they, they had had some prior warrants yeah, out for their arrest. I mean, come on. It's totally bullshit. The entire – system is bullshit and most of these companies are for profit well, the and, they're, and they're making money of off course of and that's the thing when we talk about like and I, like you know i, I couldn't think of just the information i wanted to know like, well, what kind of warrant you know they're yeah. like oh we can't talk about it because yeah. there's different things and we, and we know brown communities and black communities are persecuted and yeah. oppressed and, and they are targeted right yeah. and so like you couldn't you know, they, they put, you know, we, we didn't see anything glaring. They didn't have social justice programs in place for inmates, which, you know, that was a positive, uh, you know, trying to balance out. I, I got to speak to one of the doctors, and, you know, he told me um, that they are the largest psychiatric provider in, the, I don't know, the state or the county, which I thought was really crazy. Um you know, and I asked him, like, it, what they do when women are pregnant, and, and, you know, he said they try to get them to the hospital, and I said, do you have any programs where women can, um, you know, stay with their child while they're incarcerated? And he, and he was like, you know, I would love to have that. It's, like, interesting when you talk to, like, the people who work there, you mm -hmm. know, um, in different particular uh, areas. But, um, you know, one detainee that I, I did get to speak with, he was like, it's not bad, but it's just really hard to get used 
too. He's like, I've been in this country since I was two. I do have family in Mexico, and, and he um, voluntarily supported because I think this is one of the tactics, right? And, and even in, in shelters um, down at the border, yeah. they kind of, like, make you wait it out for a really long time. And, and I, I would assume if you're being threatened with prison time, you might voluntarily deport, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's just a whole messed up system. It's and way messed it, up. You know, we need to address it. We need to stop criminalizing people who are seeking, seeking asylum. You know, we need to create a path to citizenship because yeah. that's another, you know, well, let's set aside for a second that Trump has manufactured this crisis at the border by lowering, drastically lowering the amount of immigrants that he will let into this that's country. Right. right? But the that's other right. side of it is like, uh, you know, the overlords have manufactured this idea and pitted, you know, both Democrats and Republicans against each other by saying what? Immigrants will take your jobs. They don't pay know, taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're paying for their Medicare. Well, you know what? Let's give them a path to citizenship. Let's let them pay taxes. So everybody's paying their fair share. Because every immigrant that I've ever met has wanted nothing more than to just be part of society. Right, right. Wants to well, pay into it and be part of it. You know, I, but I totally let's agree. figure that out. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, two things, though, that I think are really important. The reason mm-hmm. we're seeing such a, an influx of immigration to our southern border is mm-hmm. is our foreign policy. So we can't really yeah. discuss these issues without also discussing the real issues in our actions. It. 100% not taking responsibility for it. That's one thing. The second thing Correct. is the reason they use that language is because they know it's affected, effective in... Yeah sort of deflecting the conversation into something else. They'll take your jobs, the brown people. You know, I think it's really important to point out that Donald Trump has, as far as I know, I wrote an article on this, I have to go back and look, has 12 or 13 appointees, including the head uh, person, the ombudsman, who are Mm -hmm. ex-FAIR org folks. She, Julie Kirshner, was the executive director at FAIR. So now if you don't know who FAIR is, FAIR is one of John Tanton's organization. And their goal, he's a a eugenicist and a white supremacist. You can, um, if folks don't know who he is, they need to look him up. So he's not advocating for zero illegal immigration. He is advocating for no immigration immigration whatsoever. Yeah. He's a white nationalist. Well, I, I, you know, I think ever that we do elect candidates who, who want to, um, who want to be a part of a government that works for all of us. Because yeah. I truly believe that it, it, diversity is what makes us strong. I know yeah. that sounds super cliche, no, but I, I really do want to be against, uh, you want to be against enacting uh, legislation that will prevent climate change. Then don't complain when we have people flooding into the country because temperatures are too hot and they can't live because there's food scarcity etc 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 right the other piece of it it, it's very um it's very intertwined you know uh we we have problems in rural areas with health care with with doctor shortages right and and that leads to rising maternal uh mortality etc and we know is that covering doctors who come over predominantly the ones in these under-resourced and rural areas. If we stop letting them in, what happens to all those people? No, I agree with you. They don't care. It's really unfortunate. So um, one last question, uh, Melanie. Are there any areas of your platform that you wanted to mention um, that we haven't discussed yet? I think um, I did a pretty thorough job. My, my top priorities are certainly, you know, Medicare for all, comprehensive right. um, climate change, the Green New Deal, um, 
fighting discrimination, immigrant rights, women's rights. Um, you know, we're, we're also seeing a lot of attacks on the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. a lot of um, mm-hmm. really tricky rule changes. Uh, I don't know if you caught, uh, I think it was earlier this week, that a, uh, a judge overruled. So Trump basically and his administration issued a new rule, essentially, and this was like months ago, uh, maybe it was even earlier this year, but essentially um, allowing doctors to discriminate against patients if, if on a religious basis. So what, what, what that means is that if a religious doctor doesn't want to treat a trans woman or um, you know, a, a gay man, they, they could not treat them, and, be, and that would be just fine. So a judge just threw that out, which is good. Um, and then, of course, you know, we, we have um, the Supreme Court who had just heard uh, those discrimination cases. And the workplace in October 8th, on October 8th, and we should hear that. Yeah. Uh, how they, you know, wean into that or what their decision is in June. But I'm hoping we can, you know, continue to build public support to make sure that every 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 person here is treated with dignity and, and given the you know quality and given the justice so you know, I think any time there's like a civil rights issue that like really fires me up so you know certainly yeah, I have some too. core tenants that I'm pushing for. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about obviously getting corporate money out of politics and that's a piece. Yeah, it's the civil rights piece for me that like has really um, you know, drawn me into activism and I think that is the motivating factor for me. It's what sustains me even when I'm when I'm completely exhausted, right? That that's what I will push for. I'll knock more doors, I'll make more phone calls. Yeah, because I, I really at my core I believe that. You know, yeah. I, I, I believe that everyone should have opportunity and that should be radical. It shouldn't be. 100% agree. So, and more importantly, if folks want to donate to your campaign, where is the best place for them to do that at? Thank you. So, my website, which is com, and it's D-A-R-R-I-G-L, and then the word for F-L-R, DorigoforCongress.com. Okay. I would really appreciate it. I still think... For, Hang on, I'm losing you a little bit with the phone. With you. Oh, um, it got, yeah, you just cut out again. Am I back? Oh, you're back. So repeat that last part. Okay. Um, so let me ask you again. I'll lead you in. I'll lead you in. So, Melanie, okay. if people want, more importantly, if people want to donate to your campaign, where is a great place for them to do that at? Yes, thank you so much for asking. Uh, my website is probably the best place, and the website is www.dorigoforcongress.com. D-A-R-R-I-G-O-F-O-R, congress.com, Dorigo for Congress. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, love coming on. It's so much fun to speak with you, and I just really appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. No, I'm glad. It was a good conversation, and I also want to um, let you promote your Twitter handle if folks want to follow you on Twitter. Oh, yes, please do. We're a little sharp-tongued on there. so. Uh, <laughs> hey, my followers are used to me, so it's all good. <laughs> you can count on it being a good time and uh, exactly. you know, getting some laughs, hopefully. Uh, we're Dorigo Melanie, so again, D-A-R-R-I-G-O-M-E-L-A-N-I-E. That's our Twitter handle, our official campaign handle. Uh, we'd love to have more followers, you know, share us out. Uh, yep. you know, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook, and, and we're Dorigo for Congress on, on uh, those social platforms. But, Excellent. yeah, we're definitely looking to build followers and, and build the movement. Yeah, so get the word out. Join us. Excellent. Yeah. 